But first, I want to thank you as a congregation. Uh, it, it, there are not many congregations that would be, and maybe not all of you would, would quite say excited to go through uh, Leviticus, but I know some of you have voiced your uh, uh, determination to, to, to do it and your delight in it. Um, I get to preach through Revelation because we have a congregation that appreciates God's Word. Uh, and we believe that all of God's Word is inspired and profitable, and that includes the tough passages. And you're not a church that just wants to kind of skim over the tough stuff and let's dwell on, you know, the lighter things. And I appreciate that. And uh, I want to build you up in that and encourage you in that because this is another tough chapter. Uh, because it deals with death, and it deals with death as a penalty, executions. Now, some of you have done high school debates, or you've done college debates, or uh, just debated people online, or you, you watch the debates uh, in Facebook or, or chat rooms or uh, over dinner tables with some colleagues or coworkers or wherever these debates take place on whether or not... Uh, states should uh, implement capital punishment, a death penalty for certain crimes. I'm not going to tell you what I think a state should do, because that's that, not because I don't have an, a, a position, but because that's not, that's not the point I want to make. So I want you to hear me clearly. When you listen to the debates, oftentimes what comes up is whether or not capital punishment serves as a deterrent. So you have one side saying, if a state executes for certain crimes, then the crime rate goes down, and then you'll have the other side say, no, it doesn't, and then they'll produce their stats, and uh, it goes back and forth. Now, what I want to say is, uh, is, is deterrent, is, uh, capital punishment serving as a deterrent, does that have anything to do with why uh, executions are in, for example, our chapter in Leviticus this morning? Maybe... But I don't think that's the main point. I think uh, after God issues the warnings and the capital punishment, did people still commit adultery? Did people still uh, commit crimes that, that got them executed? But yeah. <laughs> God didn't then go, never mind, I'm not going to issue the warning then. Because it doesn't serve as an effective deterrent, Israel is still going to disobey, disobey therefore I'm not going to issue it because it doesn't serve as an effective deterrent. Because God doesn't do that, you can see that the, the primary core issue is not whether it serves as a deterrent. The primary core issue is what does it communicate? What a state believes about life is communicated in the punishment for someone taking a life. That's more core than whether it is an effective deterrent. What if we live in a society that's so base, so vile, so conscience-seared that no matter what the punishment is, they're going to do certain crimes anyway. Is that possible? Well, it looks like it when you read the story of Israel. And so these warnings are warnings that communicate God's view of sin and the seriousness with which he takes it. And so we're not going to say whether Leviticus should be applied to America or whether Leviticus should be applied to Illinois. What we're going to say is what is God communicating in a time when there was a theocratic society where religion and government were not separate, what did God communicate through 
the executions of certain, uh, that, uh, for capital punishment for certain sins. So we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 20. And if you look through this chapter, a lot of things are just repeated sins that have been covered already. So when you go through a book like Leviticus, one of the reasons why it's difficult is because you're like, man, we covered this terrain already. We already talked about these things. Why are we going through them again? That is the point at which you need to pause and ask yourself, what is different this time around? And what you'll find that is different this time around when it goes through child sacrifices, sexual perversions, uh, etc., what you'll find this time around is that this time God is telling them what the punishments are going to be. And for most of them, it uh, all has to do with life, and for most of them it has to do with executions or death. It begins with, for example, uh, idolatry. Look with me at just the first few verses there. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Okay. Now, again, we, we covered this briefly before, but some scholars would say they were just dedicating their children to Molech. Other scholars will say, well, if you do your research, you'll find that child sacrifice was a norm uh, in the ancient Near East and in those times. Um, but either way, it's idolatry to its extreme. Okay? Taking your own children and either devoting them or most likely, I believe, is uh, sacrificing them to uh, Molech. And the result is the people of the land are supposed to take that person uh, and stone them. Now, it doesn't mean, uh, it, it's not like the uh, Salem witch trials here where you don't need witnesses, everyone's running crazy, everyone, oh, he's, he's sacrificing his child, oh, he's a necromancer, and everyone's getting killed. Uh, you needed two to three witnesses, there was a trial, um, and the first people to throw the stones were the witnesses themselves, so you better be ready. Um, so there was a process, and when you get into Deuteronomy, you see that. So what God is warding off here is idolatry at its extreme, but at the core of idolatry is turning away from God turning your affections, your sacrifices, the things that belong to him, and setting them on something else. And he's showing the seriousness that he, uh, with which he sees it. He says, verse 3, I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech, and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him and whoring after Molech, cheating on God with idols, right? That's infidelity. Now when he says cut off, some people think that means uh, that he's going to just kind of excommunicate them and they just can't be in the land anymore. But interestingly, you see that here he tells them that they're supposed to stone him, and in them stoning him, what God is doing is cutting him off. So others think when God says cut them off, he means death. Either way, even if they were ousted, it probably led to eventual death anyway. And then he goes on to uh, other things. So we'll just try to rapidly go through them because some of these things have come up before. But again, the, the, the focus is the punishments. In verse 6, 
consulting demons, essentially. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. So he's saying, if you, uh, you're looking for direction, divine guidance, divine wisdom from some other source besides me, you, you shouldn't live. Uh, he's not talking about over lunch getting some advice from somebody, like human advice, uh, but this is a demonic, spiritual thing. Um, you know, we can't act like it's not around today. Tarot cards and palm readings and things like that, God takes very seriously. And then verse 9, cursing parents. If anyone who curses his father or his mother, we'll get back to 6, 7, six, seven 8. But for anyone who curses his father, verse 9, or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Blood meaning they are put to death. And then there are executions, verses 10 through 16, for, uh, and now there's a whole litany of sexual sins that have been visited already. Adultery, incest, homosexuality, a woman and daughter together, bestiality, all those is execution. Uh, specifically for the woman and daughter together, it's, it's burned. So these are brutal. These are not, uh, you know, sort of, quote-unquote, humane, quick, painless, but it's a wrathful uh, kind of death and execution. And then verses 17 through 19, other sexual sins where the, the language is cut off, again, debatable whether it means excommunicated or killed, I think killed, but... Uh, Again, it's incest or during menstruation or with kin in general. Uh, and then verses 20 to 21, the punishment now is childlessness with sexual sin with the uncle's wife or the brother's wife. They're quote-unquote, the, the Hebrew says, stripped of children. You will, they will not have posterity. So these are the kinds of punishments. They are brutal, and uh, you can think of the devastation a, a woman, even a, 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 a husband, may feel when they find out they can't have children, but then up the ante, because in our culture, we don't think so much about posterity and legacy and the generations that are, are ahead of us. Um, and for this society, uh, it was completely devastating, not just the sadness of not being able to have a child, but that posterity getting cut off. You know, O'Neill won't exist anymore. O'Neill is done. That, that is totally uh, devastating. And so that is the punishment there. So then the question becomes, okay, he revisits some of these the, uh, sins, and these punishments are really harsh. You know, uh, they are death and it's stoning, and it's burning, and it's childlessness, and it's being cut off. Why so harsh? And then why is it some sins and not other sins? Well, the emphasis in this passage is holiness, right? And that's actually the emphasis of the whole book. That's why we call the series A Call to Holiness. This move through Leviticus, that theme comes up over and over again. So if you look at verses 7 through 8, he kind of puts that emphasis there in the middle. Consecrate yourselves, that's to, to be separate, to be holy. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So you're supposed to be holy because you're in relationship with me. I'm holy. So you have to be how I am. You have to be how I am. I'm holy. I'm different. I'm set apart, so you are set apart as my people. You're going to reflect that holiness. 
Then in 22 to 26, he brings that emphasis out again. Except this time, he connects holiness to the land that he's going to take them to, which at first may just seem like something we can just bypass easily, but that's the point I want to score with you right now. Verse 22, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. And so he's telling them they're going to be separate, and it is by virtue of their separateness that they get to be in this land. And the reason why the people before them are getting pushed out, the land is vomiting them out because their practices are so not separate. Their practices are detestable to the Lord. Israel is going to be put in that land, and God is saying, for you to be in that land, you have to be holy. In other words, if you want to be how I am, that is the only way you will get to be where I am. You have to be how I am in order for you to be where I am. So the land piece is very important, obviously, throughout not just the Old Testament, but the whole Bible. And I think this section kind of ends with that focus tying holiness to the land because it serves as a complete picture of what God is doing. They have to serve him. The final couple verses before we unpack that a little more, 25 to 27, he kind of closes it with this emphasis on cleanness, separateness, and uh, escaping false religion. So you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make for yourselves, make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with, uh, with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And then, weird, he goes back to mediums and necromancers. A man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. I think that is sort of a recap verse, a, a summary verse. Certain kind of sins, punishable by death and the blood, I mean, that's your fault. The blood is on you. You committed the sin. And God is emphasizing that a lack of holiness leads to death. And he does that right on the heels of a lack of holiness means you can't be in the land. Now, why are those things connected and why does it matter that the land is emphasized and what in the world does that have to do with us today? Well, I hope you know America is not the promised land. And uh, ultimately, Israel itself is not the promised land. I know I ticked some people off by saying that, but here's the point. God's promise to Israel to obtain a certain land was always a picture of the new earth. Abraham himself looked ahead to a far better country, the author of Hebrews tells us. So it's not that the land of Israel is unimportant. It is important. It's important as a picture of something on a larger scale. So God is drawing a picture. He's drawing an analogy. It's a type that is to be fulfilled in entering into God's rest. 
And what God is making clear to them is that if you're going to live with the source of life, you cannot do things that cut you off from me because if you do things that cut you off from being in my presence, then you cannot have life because I'm life. And if you can't be in my presence and access life, what do you get? You get death. That is the emphasis. So you can think back um, to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, you don't have to go there, but you'll remember that Genesis uh, chapter 2, 15 and following, God takes Adam, he puts him in a land called Eden, he puts him in a garden in Eden, and he tells him, you can eat from all these trees, so here's Adam, he puts him in a land. He puts him in a place, a space, where God is present, where they can walk together, right? And he says, you can eat from all these trees, but if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Well, what does Adam do? He eats from that one tree, and he starts to experience the decay and death. It starts with shame. Uh, He obviously starts aging. Uh, He's leading toward his eventual death, but what immediately happens is he's excommunicated from God's presence. So death and not being in God's presence, life and being in God's presence, they go together. And so the concept of land didn't start with Abraham it started in the garden. Here's space. You can't be in this space anymore. And by not being able to be in this space, right, you can't eat from the tree of life now. Why can't you eat from the tree of life? Because you're dead. You can't have life now. And so now you are out. And so the outness led to death. And I think these punishments, while they were brutal and while they didn't cover every sin, they communicated to Israel that sin leads to death. Now, why didn't every sin lead to death? Well, imagine being an an employer, uh, you're hiring employees, and every infraction is a terminable offense. If they show up late, they're fired. You know, if they leave something out that they should have put back, fired. If they're supposed to face the shelves and one little box is crooked, fired. If they're supposed to dust and you find a speck of something that they missed, fired. You would not have any employees. If God executed every Israelite for every sin they committed, there wouldn't be Israel. They they would be dead. They'd be gone. So certain sins that God chose in his own prerogative to communicate that sin leads to death. And you remember in Romans chapter 5, Paul made it very clear that when Adam bit that fruit and introduced death into the world, we sinned in Adam. So therefore, we experience death. So throughout the Bible, death is a reminder that it is something that we are all under. We are all under the curse of death. And the people that got executed just got it sooner. And they did serve as a picture of being on the out with God. And being on the out with God leads to death. An ultimate death, an eternal death. By the time you get to the New Testament, you, can, you put these pieces together and we say, okay, we are immortal beings, but... In judgment, there will be a separation between those that experience resurrection to life and those that experience resurrection to eternal death, an eternal process of dying. What does that look like? I don't know. I don't want to find out. But it's made very clear. And for those who would tell you, well, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament is something very different. No, it's not. The New Testament is harsher. 
And Jesus is the original fire and brimstone preacher. Most of what we know about hell is because of Jesus' sermons. And he made it very clear. Some people will tell you, you know, it's not very effective to talk to unbelievers about hell because then they might turn just to escape hell. I'm like, well, that's what Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus didn't think that was, a, that, that was logical. Maybe that is what gets them to, to embrace him. They don't want death. Oh, they want life. How do I get life? Now, of course, there's more to that. And turning to Christ is also embracing him, not just embracing escape from hell, but that doesn't mean don't preach about hell, don't talk about hell, don't talk about death. And so if we kind of skim over the dark death passages of the Old Testament to kind of hurry up to the New Testament, you're still going to be skipping a bunch of stuff in the Gospels. You're never going to read the book of Revelation where Jesus comes in wrath and he's got a sword and he's chopping people down. There's a lot to skip even in the New Testament if we're not ready to grapple with the idea that sin leads to death. What is the opposite of sin? Holiness. And so living a life of holiness is a matter of life and death. If you don't live a holy life, you might be under the condemnation of death. I'm going to unpack that in a minute. I know that I'm always walking that tightrope. I don't want anyone leaving here going, I need to live a perfect life, and if I don't, no. Just, but I do want that to just land with you for a minute. A lack of holiness bars us from presence with God, from entering His rest, from entering His ultimate presence. Sin keeps us on the out. Unless we think that this is just Old Testament Now in the New Testament, hey, we're all in. It's all gravy. All you got to do is walk up to the front of a church, say a prayer, sign a card, you know, gather around the fire with the camp counselor and the guitar and and say a few words, repeat after me, and boom, I'm I'm in. Uh, That's scary. That's scary. So I do want you to turn to this one passage just so we can make some connections. uh, And that's in Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews really ruffles feathers. It's a beautiful book, but there are five extended warning passages in the book of Hebrews uh, that have stumped many, have frustrated many. But I do want to turn to one of those warning passages. This is the second of the five. So chapter 3, starting in verse 7, we'll go to 4.1. He's writing to a group of believers. Many think that the book of Hebrews is itself a sermon. It's a sermon written down. It's not so much a letter. And he warns them. And he quotes Psalm 95. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So let's just pause there a second. What Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews is saying, or the preacher here, if this is a sermon, he's quoting Psalm 95 and saying, remember Psalm 95 with the Holy Spirit is referring back to the book of Exodus. 
And there was a people that he brought out of Egypt. They were baptized. They went through the waters of the Red Sea. And in this wilderness process, they proved to not really be in. They proved to not really be a part of that group that eventually gets to the land. And so God cut them off and said, you are not going to enter my rest. Now what's interesting is God promised the people of Israel, you will get to the land. I'm going to do it. But then when a certain group of Israelites presumed upon that promise and lived however they wanted, grumbled however they wanted, demanded things when they wanted to demand things, God said, I'm still going to be good on my promise, but you particular rebels are not going to be a part of that promise. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's applying that to the New Testament church and saying on any given Sunday, a bunch of people are gathered, but is everyone going to make it? Listen to his voice, because everyone then didn't make it, and that was a picture of what we're experiencing now. God still operates the same way. He offers this promise, it's built on him, but there's some people who claim the promise, but don't actually have the promise, and God says, you're not going to enter my rest. Verse 12, look, take care, brothers, lest there be any Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's his call to holiness. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, and then he quotes Psalm 95 again, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he drives it home. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? These are not the Egyptians. These are not the Canaanites. These are people that look like they're in. They claim to be in. They're walking and eating and talking with others that are in. Right? God brought them out. They went through the water. You can see the analogy. These are people, they've been baptized. They're part of the church. They, they, they gather. They listen to sermons. And he says in verse 17, And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? In other words, rescue from Egypt doesn't mean you get a free pass to do what you want. They sinned, and they still didn't make it to the land. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, his ultimate, his land? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, God still offers the promise of entering his presence ultimately. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That, that, see, that's the dilemma. God offers a promise, and when God makes a promise, he's going to do it. But be careful, because you might not make it. Well, which one is it? God promises to do it, but I might not make it? So is it by works, or is it by grace? If it's totally by God's promise, then God is going to do the work. But if it's totally by my performance, well, then I have to be obedient. This is why the passage is complicated and why I thought 
I wonder if I should take us here. But I think this is going to help us understand what to do with the book of Leviticus. Because some might be hearing me preach through Leviticus and going, you need to work, you need to be holy, you need to be holy, you need to be holy. If you're not holy, you're not going to make it. Well, yeah, that's true. If you're not holy, you're not going to be make it. But what I'm not saying is you can make it based on your own holy performance. What are you talking about? This sounds like what you just said. No, 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 no. I want to point you to two or three key things in this passage we just read to help you understand what the author is doing here. And what the author is doing is that your performance has to flow from belief. The people that don't enter, it's because they didn't believe. The people that do enter, it's not because they perform perfectly, it's because the performances were flowing from belief. Look at verse 12. Here's the warning. Take care, brothers, lest, any, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. So some people say, see, you can believe in Christ, you can give your life over to him, and then fall away. That's not what it says. Who are the people that fall away? Well, the people that have an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, they said they believed. They signed a paper that said it believed. But they didn't believe. There's still something wrong with their heart. Guys, this is what pastors can't see, elders can't see, other Christians around you. We can't necessarily... You, you know, we don't have x-ray vision to go, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. This is something you have to grapple with before the Lord. All of us disobey, all of us mess up, all of us make mistakes, but some of us are making not mistakes, but we're intentionally bent on evil. We haven't been changed at all. And so the warning here isn't, I know you believe, and I know you're clinging to God's promise, but you might get yourself off the boat. <laughs> you might get left behind in the wilderness because uh, you just sinned way too many times. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, do you really believe? Or are you just kind of showing up? Are you kind of just joining the wilderness march? Or have you really changed? The next clue is in that final paragraph of chapter 3. You see verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Why were they disobedient? What kind of disobedience was it? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of, oops, not disobedience, unbelief. See? There's disobedience that believers partake in, and then there's disobedience that's a result of not being a believer at all. And that's the kind of person that falls away. So there is a promise in verse 1. There is a promise of entering his rest. But some in the congregation, some listening to this sermon that's now called Hebrews, some listening to this sermon that you're hearing now, might fail to reach it. And you will experience the death penalty, not because of particular sins, but because we are all under the death penalty. We are all under that curse. That's why we all grow old. That's why we're dying. And eventually we'll reach a time of judgment. So, how do we do it? Do we leave here and go, okay, I need to perform in my obedience. I need to be more holy. I need to be better. Yes, but you will quickly find out you can't do it. Well, there's the next dilemma. Jesus said it himself, be, be holy. The Father's holy. You need to be holy. People say, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is so great. He kind of removes the Old Testament stuff. He raises the bar on the Old Testament stuff. Do you think because you're not physically committing adultery, you're okay? 
If you commit adultery in your heart, you should be dead. You broke the law that demands execution in the Old Testament if you did it in your heart. What? (laughs) We're dead. But Jesus raises the bar. What does Jesus want people to do in response to the Sermon on the Mount? Go, okay, I can do it. No, they're supposed to realize, I can't. I thought I was doing well by not killing the guy that I hated. But I can't even hate him? I can't even call him a name? Or I'm in danger of hellfire? Like, Jesus? That's that's impossible. Well, follow Jesus' teaching. Follow his ministry. Repent and believe that I'm bringing the kingdom, that I'm taking death for you. I need you to get to the point where you go, okay, it's impossible for me to escape death. Yes! Now, how do you escape death? What if someone takes it from me? Someone worthy, someone who can withstand it, someone who can withstand an eternal punishment in a moment. Oh, yeah, the Son of God who comes to be a man to take man's punishment, but because he's God, he can take that punishment, which is an eternal one. And grant life. How do we enter the promised land? Belief in our own abilities? Nope. That leaves you stuck. But belief in what Jesus is able to accomplish for you? That's the person that enters God's rest. That's the person that starts growing in obedience. We're not perfect immediately out of of the gate, but we grow in it. And we care about holiness. When someone approaches you and says, I think that's wrong. You're not immediately like, shut up, don't preach to me. You're like, oh, is it? I mean, because you care about holiness. And we band together to encourage one another. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. It is not loving to see someone else's life showing signs of unbelief and then just not addressing it because you just don't want to make, you know, you just don't want to cause any disturbances. It's just really awkward conversation. It is an awkward conversation, but... It's, it's life and death. We should be encouraging one another in this thing that we call the Christian walk. You think about the, uh, the brutality of the execution. Stoning someone to death. I mean, how long does that take? How big is the rock? If it's too big, you can't throw it real hard. If it's too small, you're just pelting them for three hours. It's a brutal, it's a brutal way to go, burning somebody brutal and it communicates wrath God takes sin seriously have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just get a quick humane execution he took all kinds of wrath so that he can block it for the worst of us that is entrance so for those of us who are really going to make it into God's rest If we're still running on the treadmill, convincing ourselves that we can be holy enough, we lose. But if we surrender to passages like this or the book of Leviticus and go, yeah, I'm not holy. I can't can't meet those expectations of holiness. I'm never going to be able to enter into God's rest. Then you turn to Christ, and that is the promise that you cling to. Because Christ takes care of the work that we're not able to do. And then he changes the heart inside of you so that now you can work. I think this bears repeating, and I'll close with this. 
the relationship between grace and works is not one or the other. It's that one produces the other. Works does not get you into heaven, but grace that doesn't produce works or faith that doesn't produce works is a fake one. Right? So, works don't get you to Jesus, but Jesus gets you to work. And your life looks different on the other side of placing faith in Jesus Christ. Not perfection, but pursuit and progress. You care about holiness because you know where you're going and you're not ready right now to be in God's rest, but God is taking you there. He's changing you, conforming you to Christ, but he only does that work in you if you've, if you've experienced the heart change that the Old Testament talks about. Eventually when we get to Deuteronomy, don't wait till we do a sermon series in it, but read through Deuteronomy. You might need a little breather from Leviticus first, I get it. Then go into Deuteronomy, and you will see this interplay between God saying, live according to my laws, they're easy, they're not even hard. And then in the next breath saying, you're never going to live according to these laws. I have to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I have to circumcise your heart. And when I do that work, then you'll be able to do these things. Well, when did he do that? Well, he did that in the New Covenant. So when we take that bread and we drink that cup together, we're reminded of Jesus' words, this is the new covenant in my blood. In the Leviticus passage, you committed a sin that's worthy of death, your blood is on you. In the new covenant, our blood is on Christ, Christ's blood is on us. And that exchange changes you, you become a new creation so that now, now you can start living in holiness day by day, Glory by glory. And we need His grace to do it. So we take the warnings seriously. If there's anyone of you in here this morning and you're not sure and you want to be sure, please talk to any one of us that you've seen up here this morning, anyone wearing a green lanyard, uh, and ask us to talk with you more about, okay, uh, I don't have assurance. You know, I'm, I am not sure. We would love to talk with you about the grace offered by the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful message to be able to read your word and see the weight and the seriousness of our sin that, that cut us off from you because you are holy and you are perfect But God, we take that thread of what we need in Leviticus, that land promise, and we keep pulling that thread and it takes us all the way to Jesus Christ and we get the relief of the good news, the offer of grace. And if we place faith in Christ, we will experience ultimate rescue. And then in the day of judgment, Christ takes judgment for us And that even now, those who are in Christ Jesus are not under any condemnation. Lord, that is a freedom that we cannot afford, that we cannot muster, that we cannot accomplish. But we thank you for it. And we close in this song uh, praising you for being a God of um, holiness, justice, but also of mercy and grace. Help our hearts to um, elevate to that gratitude as we sing, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.